0: Good to see you here at our five o'clock service, and uh, I'm going to be ministering at the seven o'clock service as well, and we're hoping to wait on the Holy Spirit to see how he wants to minister, but what I will be speaking about at the seven o'clock service is um, the subject of the value of a human soul, the value of a human soul. But today, we are continuing our series on spiritual warfare. What it is and what it isn't. On the last two Sundays, we've been talking a little bit about how the enemy, uh, the uh, the devil, tries to get into our lives. We looked at Ephesians chapter six, and uh, we spoke about the fact that uh, we stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, we also uh, spent some time talking last week about how. We don't want to give the devil a foothold. Ephesians says, don't give him a foothold or a space. And how does he get into our lives to try and uh, destabilize us? We spoke about that in the last two sessions. If you're watching on the internet or watching this later, as many of you do, welcome to you. And you can always go back, if you've missed a Sunday on our KT website and go to the media section um, if, if you want to catch up. I want to speak about something different in a few moments on taking a step back, not so much looking at how we defend our lives against the enemy in spiritual warfare, but how the enemy works more on a global scale. But I ended last week by speaking a little bit about Satan's name and what it means, and I wanted to finish that off today. I wanted to do a bit on that. And we said that Satan has many different names. He's a liar, he's a murderer. He is Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. And we looked at that last week, what that would mean. Flies only go where there's uh, dirty, impure things. And so if that's where he operates, you don't find flies in a clean kitchen. And we spoke about how we keep our lives clean, we won't give the devil a foothold. But one of his, or his major name is Satan, Satan. Or the Greek word for Satan is diabolos. It means the same thing. And it means accuser. So our English words, when we get devil, or when you hear the word diabolical, diabolical, diabolos, or Satan, which is the Hebrew form, these words mean accuser. So the word Satan means accuser. And I want to spend just a few moments on that before I move on to the next section. Because this is one of the main ways that he attacks us through his accusation revelation 12 verse 10 says and i heard a voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of god and the authority of his christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down now that could you could say the devil of our brethren has been thrown down or you could say the satan of our brethren has been thrown down, because that's what those names mean. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to, de- and to death. This idea of Satan as the accuser, there's sort of two elements to it when we look at Scripture. The first is the picture of Satan as the sort of, if we look, think about a courtroom as Satan taking upon himself the self appointed role as prosecutor. You know, when when someone uh, is accused of a crime and they go to court and then uh, the prosecution comes, doesn't doesn't they? And the, the prosecution can be very tough because they're trying to get a conviction. And so they're trying, the, the prosecution's job is to make the best case against this person. They're not there to defend this person, they're there to, that, that, that's, the, that's another person's job. They're there to accuse, to make the best case against this person and get a conviction. Well, this is a picture that we often have of Satan, I mean, one of the greatest pictures of Satan in his accusing role is found in the book of Job, isn't it? Job chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, accuser, from where do you come? Then Satan answered to the Lord, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. And then God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. And what does Satan do? Well, Satan begins to... Accuse Job, doesn't he? Uh, God says, look at Job, he's righteous, he's a wonderful servant... Uh, servant. And, ...and basically, Satan accuses him and says, oh, well, no wonder he's a great servant. It's because you've blessed him so much. And he accuses uh, Job of not being righteous. Just take away some of his blessing and he'll curse you. So there he is, the role of accuser. He's making a case against Job before God... And then we know what happens. Uh, ter- uh, 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 God says, all right, I'll, I'll let my servant be tested to my glory and to his integrity. And terrible things happen. He loses his, all his possessions and uh, and, and Satan atta- And then at the end of it, God says, you see, he is righteous. And then Satan says, oh, wait a second, skin for skin. Skin for skin. And again begins his accusing of Job, doesn't he? And says... Uh, he says, if you, if you inflict him with disease, then you'll see. So again, he's making an accusation uh, against Job of not being righteous. And we, and we know the story, that God says, well, you can touch him, but you can't take his life. And even then, Job did not deny God. Though he slay me, he said, I'll yet trust him. One of the great faith statements and trust statements of the Bible. And we know at the end of it, Job is restored and his reputation is confirmed, and he's a great great example for us today. So th- there's a picture of Satan accusing. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan was accusing, wasn't he? The first person he was accusing was God. So he was building a case against God in front of Eve. He was saying, did God tell you that if you eat of this fruit, you will die? you shall surely not die. In other words, the way that Satan, the accuser, was getting to Eve and then Adam was accusing God of lying, accusing God of holding back on blessing Adam and, and, and Eve, accusing God as being a liar, you shall not die, he, God is a liar, and saying God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be just like him. So what was happening there, it was accusations, wasn't it? Against the character of God, and the goodness of God, and the word of God. It was his accusing power, that, that and, and, and what happened? Adam and Eve believed the accusations of the devil against God, and the rest is history. Well, we see him accusing again. In Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1, the prophet Zechariah. Again, it's a very uh, insightful picture of Satan doing his accusing. Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan was also... Oh, sorry, I mean Job. Job, what but i got my scripture wrong. Here, uh, um, here we go. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Well, what's this about? Well, Joshua... He was the high priest at the time, and he was the high priest when the uh, uh, the southern uh, part of Israel, the Davidic kingdom, southern southern Israel, um, based around Jerusalem, when they were carried off into Babylonian captivity, they carried off into captivity all the nobles and the priests, and one of the and the high priest that was in captivity, his name was Joshua, and during that time he was engaged in idolatry. He, he had got mixed up with Babylonian idolatry. And when it was time to bring them back, this is a picture of Satan accusing uh, Joshua before God. And basically what Satan is saying, this man is not fit to be the high priest. Look at him. Look how dirty, dirty he is. Look how evil he is. Look how sinful he's been. Look how idolatrous he's been. And if you, if you read on, from from verse 2 in Zechariah what does God do he says take off his dirty robes and give him a clean robe and give Joshua a clean turban and put a ring on his finger so satan was saying judge this man this man is not fit to be a high priest this man has sinned and, and was building a case against Joshua but God rebuked satan and said, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, God was saying, I know this man has made mistakes. I know this man deserves judgment, but I'm going to give him grace. I'm going to cleanse him. I'm going to restore him. And um, we mentioned about Revelation. They overcame the s- Satan. The accuser of the brethren was thrown down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Now, how does this affect your life? Well, Satan is accusing you. Now, you say, is he accusing me before God? Well, well, he may well be, but, but thank God we've got the blood of Jesus. We're New Testament believers. That's why we overcome Satan by the blood. Because when the devil tells us how bad we are, or if he were, as it were, to say, God, how can you bless these people? They are sinful, they're backslidden, did you know what they did and everything? What do we plead? We plead the blood. We say, God, don't look at our failures, look at Jesus' blood. And the devil, he has no case against the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus saves, the blood of Jesus forgives, the blood of Jesus sanctifies, the blood of Jesus, Jesus has paid the price for all our sins. So when Satan points out our sins to God, God just points him in the direction of Christ crucified, who became the curse on the cross so that we could receive the blessing. So when that... But the other way that Satan comes against us is really in our minds. We spoke about Ephesians 6 and... We have the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. And one of Satan's greatest uh, attacks on the believer's mind is accusation. To get you trapped in guilt and accusation to make you feel that God, God hates you, that God's angry with you, that... What you've done in the past or, what, or, or your failures of the present disqualifies you from coming into his presence. And so one of the devil's greatest works against the believer is to accuse the believer and with those thoughts coming into your mind. They're not just your thoughts, you know, but the devil will put thoughts in your mind where you think, oh, God hates me, God's angry with me, or oh, I can't do what God wants me to do, I'm a failure, I'm a terrible Christian, I'm a... And, and there are many, many thousands and thousands of Christians in London today that aren't in fellowship with any other Christians, that aren't going to church, and at the root of the reason why they've been isolated is they just don't think they're good enough for God. They believed the lie of the enemy. The lie said, you're not, you're not a real Christian. You're not a proper Christian. God doesn't love you. You're a fake. You're a failure. You can't live up to, you know what I'm talking about? And they have believed the lies of the enemy and they thought, well, I might as well go back into the world. And they've got this false picture of God because the devil's been accusing God like he did accuse God before Adam and Eve. And he's saying, God, God's an angry God. God's furious with you. He's accusing God and he's saying, and you, you're worthless. Look what you did. You call yourself a Christian, look what you did last week. You call yourself a Christian, you're not living up. And accuses them of not being strong enough as Christians. All of that is a demonic attack. And what we have to do is recognize that our righteousness is never of our own. The moment we start trying to build a case for us being righteous, we're we're finished. The moment you start saying, well, devil, I, I, I go to church on a Sunday, I'm part of a cell group, I, I pray, I, it'll never be enough. Well, whenever the devil comes to you and says you're not good enough, you just say, no, that's true, but Jesus is. And Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus, if you're going to accu- stop accusing me, Satan, accuse Jesus because he's my righteousness. I'm in him. You hear what I'm saying? So even, when you're, even if you're a Christian and you're backslidden and you're not living like you should, the way to come back is, is to realize that God still loves you. And if anyone sins, he has a advocate. What's an advocate? It's a lawyer, isn't it? It's an advocate. If anyone sins, and it's the, the picture is you've sinned and the devil's, you're rubbish, you're a failure. You're a, and you know, when, when we talk about the devil, it's not just the devil that says it. He can find Christians to speak through. I, got, oh, I got, That's a felt need. Out there. I can feel that. I, he can, and, and you know he can. He can find Christians or church, judgmental churches to use them. And you see, when we are judgmental with one another, what are we doing? Accusing. It's one of the nastiest things that you'll ever come across in the church is a self-righteous believer going around pointing out everybody's sins and who they are and who they're not and who do they think they are and call themselves a leader. Do you know what they're doing? Satan's work. Now, there are people that are in authority that, that are in position to, to, to graciously help people. And when you look at people that are caught in, in a sin in the Bible, who are the ones that are to deal with people caught in traps of sin? It's the spiritual ones. It's the mature ones. It's the ones that will come with grace and mercy and maturity to help somebody out, to come alongside and and to help them. In Galatians chapter 6, when it talks about bearing one another's burdens and if Anyone is caught in a sin, you that are spiritual should help them. The word to help them or restore them is is the word that's used for when somebody breaks a bone and you set it in a cast. Yeah? That's the word to set. So it's like someone if someone's broken or caught in a sin, to bring them back is to (coughs) is to heal them. (coughs) Excuse me. Is to heal them, (coughs) not to accuse them. <clears throat> some, people, um, some people have said, it's a bit rough, but some people say the church is the only organization on the face of the earth that shoots its wounded. In other words, you've fallen, you've sinned, you've made a mistake, and, uh, you're, and, and, and we're going to accuse you, we're going to make you feel bad, we're not going to give you a, a, a way back. And so this can come from many different quarters. Pharisaism. ...is a form of satanic accusation. See, this is why Jesus was so strong with the Pharisees. Because many of the Pharisees were were satanic vessels. You say satanic, yeah. Remember what the word Satan means? Accusers. They were satanic. You talk about satanic this and satanic that. The word means accusers. So the Pharisees were going around accusing. They accused Jesus, didn't they? He eats with sinners. He goes to parties... Doesn't he know that woman and who she is that's washing his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair? Doesn't he know? Accusation. Accusation. If you're the son of God, come off the cross. Do you remember when the devil tested uh, Jesus and we looked at that last week? It was an accusation, wasn't it? If you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Oh, you can't do it. You're not the son of God. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Oh, you're not going to do it, are you? And Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord your God. Well, then you're not the Son of God. So it was an accusation that was coming. He was trying to accuse Jesus. Now, we've said that in Revelation it says, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. That's because when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he... Pay for our sins, but Colossians, read the letter to the Colossians, it's such an amazing letter, because it speaks about the fact that on the cross Jesus also nailed Satan and all his power. That he made a spectacle of all the authorities. Now, these are mainly spiritual authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus' death on a cross was the major moment of spiritual warfare, that and, of course, the resurrection, and the defeat of the enemy, because now Satan could no longer accuse blood-bought Christians because they were under the blood. They were saved and secured because of what Jesus had done. So when you think about the devil as the accuser, It's very interesting when we think we, you know, what we've already mentioned, uh, the letter of John says, we have, if any man sins and the accuser's at you, we have an advocate in heaven and the blood of Jesus that speaks and defends us. But not only is Jesus our advocate, if you like, in heaven, but also the Holy Spirit. If the devil's our accuser in the court of law, the Holy Spirit is our defender. When you read in John chapter 14 and John 16 about the role of the Holy Spirit, there is a name there, isn't there? And depending on what version you get, you may have helper or comforter. But do you know the actual Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek originally, the actual Greek word for the Holy Spirit in, in, in those passages, it's not helper, it's not comforter, it's parakletos. And that word in the Greek means called alongside. But have we got anybody in the legal profession that's here today? You ever heard the word paraclete? Someone else? Do you know what a paraclete is in law? No? Well, paraclete is still a word that's used today in legal language, and a paraclete ...is somebody who's a lawyer that stands and defends you. And in the ancient world, a paraclete was that. That's why it's come through into uh, in legal language today. A paraclete. In the the Greek world, a paraclete was the person that stood in a court of law... ...alongside you, parakletos. Para, alongside, kletos, called. Called alongside you to defend you. So isn't that amazing... Satan means accuser. Comforter or um, uh, helper, actually the word means defender, advocate. And some versions actually uh, translate Paraclete as advocate. An advocate, so the Holy Spirit has come alongside to defend you, to stand up for you, to take your side. How many have ever in their lives had someone really stick up for you? Anyone had anyone stand up for you? You're in a tricky situation. Maybe somebody's accused you of something. Maybe you were accused at school of stealing something or accused of saying something you didn't say or, or maybe somebody accused you at work of not doing what you should have done and someone stands and says, wait a second, that's not true, I was there or, or speaks on your behalf or gives you a character witness or, or stands up for you. It's a wonderful thing if you've never had it, it's a, well, it is. It's a wonderful thing when someone stands up on your behalf and defends you. It's a wonderful thing. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that at the beginning, because I just felt it was such an important part of spiritual warfare to know that when the devil comes at you with these uh, with accusing you or accusing God, then know it's a demonic attack and plead the blood. You know, go to God. If you have to deal with things in your life, fine. But God will always open you, always welcome you, open wide. Doesn't matter how much of a prodigal son or daughter you are. His arms are always open wide. We just need to run into them. Now I want to move on a little bit to how the enemy works at different world, at different areas of the world, worldwide spiritual warfare. We know that Ephesians 6, verse 12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So we have this picture of wicked spiritual forces at work in our world, and they are powers and they are Global forces, world forces that, that are at work in that. I like the way Derek Prince, the famous Bible teacher, um, paraphrases Ephesians six twelve. He puts it like this For our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, not against persons with bodies, but against rulers with various areas and descending orders of authority against world dominators of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Now, I could take a lot of examples of this, but one of the best examples we see of what's going on behind the scenes in world history is Daniel chapter 10. You might like to turn to that with me if you have your Bibles at hand Daniel chapter 10 actually let me just that. it might be let me just find the passage I want. Yeah, okay. Now, in this particular situation in Daniel, we find that Daniel and the children of Israel are, well, the leaders anyway, are, have been taken away into Babylon and are in Babylonian Captivity and Daniel receives a vision. And uh, I I know where I am because I'm that's right. I needed to go to I needed to go to nine first. That's why. Chapter nine, Daniel. In the chapter nine, verse two, in the first year of his reign, Darius, I Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation to Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what happens here is Daniel's reading Jeremiah, and you can see in the, the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah prophesies that this Babylonian captivity will only last 70 years, and then they will be able to return to Israel. Daniel's reading the prophecy... He sees that, and what does he do? Well, he takes that, as what we'd call in Ephesians 6, as a sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He says, right, I've got a prophecy here to do warfare with, so I'm going to take this word, and I'm going to begin to use it. I'm going to begin to pray. This is one of the important things about spiritual warfare, when we have the word of God, a scripture or a rhema word that's given to us by the Holy Spirit, where, where God gives us a, 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 a scripture to pray or a, a phrase to believe him for. You don't just leave it, you put it to work by praying it through. So in verse 3 it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased with mercy and fasting and sack fl- sackcloth. And then we see the prayer of him, and what he's doing is saying, basically he's saying, Lord, this is your word, and I pray that this word will come to pass. The 70 years are nearly up, and we pray that you will deliver us. Now, he prays this, and he prays this, and he doesn't feel anything. He doesn't see anything to begin with. He doesn't hear anything. He's just praying God's word and believing God's word, And then what we see in chapter ten is that chapter ten verse twelve. He then has an angelic visitation, and this angelic visitation will give us a picture of what's going on behind the scenes of human history. Daniel is unaware of these. It's like it's almost like there was a curtain between the natural and the spiritual. And that what happened was, Daniel saw the word of God. After 70 years, there'll be a restoration. He's praying it day in, day out. For three weeks, he's doing this. Feels nothing, experiences nothing. He's just praying the word of God. He has no idea that what he's praying is having a powerful effect in the spiritual realm. Then this angel visits him and says this to him. In verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me, chapter 10, 10, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand And humble yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. That's the three weeks he'd been praying. But Michael, one of my chief princes, came to help me. Sorry, one of the chief princes came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. And came to make you understand what has happened to your people in the latter days. For the vision is yet to come. And then if we go a little bit further down. He says in verse 20, the angel. Then he said, do you not know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Well, what's taking place here? This this is a picture of Ephesians 6. Now, when we talk about the history of the world, we have to understand that we usually only see that history in its physical manifestation. Nations rise, nations fall, different events take place politically, economically, and we see these and we call that human history. Well, according to the Bible, history of the world is not just a history of visible human beings and visible kingdoms and rulers. But according to the Bible, there are also invisible principalities, powers, rulers, Spiritual forces of darkness in high places. We read it in Ephesians 6, didn't we? And so we just see the visible world. But there is also an equally real invisible world. And they're not two worlds, but they're one world. One world. Just because we don't see the invisible does not mean that it's not there. We see at times that angels can appear, can't they, into the visible world. It doesn't mean they don't exist until that point. Things are happening in the invisible world. I've always thought it would be amazing, and we've got a glimpse here, if you could just sit back and see what's going on in the world today, both spiritually and physically. Has anyone ever read that book, um, Piercing the Darkness, by I've forgotten his name. Frank Peretti, Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti. If you like a good read, it's a a novel. Get hold of Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti. What is it? It's a novel, it's a story. But what he does is he speaks about a town in America and he writes the story of what's going on in that town, the history of that town at that moment. But he, in his novel, his story, he gets to see both the human part, and the angels and demons. And so not only do you see what's going on in human beings' lives, but you also see the angels or the demons that are operating behind. It's it's a fantastic book. It's fiction, of course, but what it does is it gives you that sort of realization, wow, it's not just human beings that make history. It's It's not just our life. It's not just, you know, what happens when the Tories get voted in, or don't get voted in, or what happens at work. But actually, behind the scenes, there were equally important angels and demons at work. We know the Bible says that we all have an angel; that little ones have angels that specially look after them and, uh, and, and behold the face of their father. There are angels at work and visitate. So we have to realise that this is what this is what's happening, and. This picture of uh, Daniel gives us a great picture because what's happening is... Now, 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 Daniel doesn't know what's going on. He's just got God's word, God's sword. He's got the word of the Lord for the situation that he's facing, hasn't he? He's saying, what is the word? What shall I pray about this? And he's looked and he's found Jeremiah said 70 years. said, that's what I need. Lord, deliver us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, have mercy on us. Jeremiah prophesied after 70 years, it's coming up to 70, Lord hear our prayer. He's fasting, he's praying, he's taking the word of God. All of this is tremendous spiritual warfare. Because what he, do- he doesn't know, until the angel reveals it to him, is that the moment he begins praying God's will, angels are activated. He says, from the moment, from the day that you prayed, you, Daniel, you didn't know about it, set into motion angelic warfare. And he says, you prayed. And there was a delay. You were heard the first moment you prayed. But it took three weeks for me to battle through as an angel to get you. Why? Because it says, there was resistant. The prince of the kingdom of Persia restood me. ...verse 13 of chapter 10. What does that mean? Well, he's not talking about a physical prince, is he? This is a demonic principality... ...that had attached itself to the kingdom of Persia... ...and that was resisting... ...this breakthrough from heaven to earth. You know, we say, Lord, your kingdom come... ...your will be done... ...on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer. The most powerful prayer you can pray... And what are you praying? He's saying, "Lord, your will that's in heaven can it break through and manifest on earth." And that's what Daniel was praying, he was saying, "Your will be done, your kingdom come." But it took three weeks for the breakthrough to come. The angel said, "I heard you from the beginning. I couldn't get through. I couldn't get through immediately. In fact, the angel, the archangel or the prince, Michael, had to come along. ...and join the battle to break through this demonic principality... ...behind Persia that didn't want to let you go... ...and didn't want the breakthrough. But Michael, who we find out later in Daniel... ...is is a specific angel given assignment... ...to stand for the nation and people of Israel. Got me through, and I finally broke through... ...to give you the answer that the breakthrough's coming... And he says, now I've got to go back and fight again, because a new prince is going to come on the scene. Who was the prince? The prince of Greece. Well, that's interesting, because when the Persian Empire was destroyed, who was it destroyed by? Alexander the Great. So we find that the fall of Persia and the rise of Greece is not just a human activity, but something in the invisible Angelic world, or where demons are active and angels are fighting, that also, that, that, that. So, what happens in these massive angelic battles affects what happens in our physical lives, yes? But also, what we do affects what happens in their battles. Now, having looked into this window of the invisible and how the invisible affects the visible and how the visible affects the invisible, This doesn't mean now that we need to go and say, Oh, Lord, show me a picture of what's happening in the heavenly realm. Show me pictures of demons and pictures of angels and and let me talk to... That's nonsense. We're in Daniel's position, aren't we? This was just to encourage Daniel and to encourage us that when we pray, things happen. When we pray, things happen. I mean... It's difficult because we all come from different political, you know, I don't know who, how you voted, and you don't know how I voted, and all that lot. But what we were praying, and you can judge whether it was right or not, What we, the prayer line that we were praying at Kensington Temple, very strongly, especially in the Wednesday night meeting, I mean, we prayed our hearts out. We were praying that God would not give us the government that we deserved, but he'd give us a government that would be his grace. Now you might think, well, we got the one we deserved, because you don't like the Tories. Or you might love the Tories and think, oh, praise the Lord, it was a breakthrough. I don't know, I don't know. I'm hoping that what could have happened could have been a lot worse. I don't know, I'm making a political judgment now, I can't do it. But what I can say is that when we pray, it can change what's going on politically. Because God raises up governments, and God brings them down. And, and when you get a bad govern- government, when you get a bad government, whatever that might be, then what that is, is a judgment against the nation. You see, if you look at the nation of Israel and see how its actions affected its destiny. When Israel was close to God and believing God in, during the time of the kings, God would often bring blessing. But when they turned to God, away from God, God would often let the enemy in, true? I know this is Old Testament. When you think of the judges, it was the same thing, wasn't it? In judges, you've got this cycle. When they're walking with God, generally speaking, in judges, when they walk with God, are they victorious? Are they secure? Are they blessed? Yes. But when in judges, and generally speaking throughout the history of kings, when in judges... Do, do, they, do they lose? When do the Philistines come in? Isn't it always attributed to their lack of spirituality? But then when they turn to the Lord, sooner or later, God gets into is Isn't that right? So we see that our spirituality, our prayers, our devotions can affect the heavenlies. So a, a wicked government is when God gives a nation over to its sin. So if a nation says we don't need God and does it on a consistent basis and God says, okay, you don't need me, the wrath of God is revealed in Romans 1. How is the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness in Romans 1? Three times it says how God judges. He doesn't do flashes of lightning or tsunamis. Or No, it says three times, God gave them over to their own ways and lusts. So, what does that mean? This is the worst judgment that can happen to you or a nation or anything like that. Well, not if you're a believer, but you know this is the worst thing that can happen to a nation, is God just says, Okay, I'll leave you to your own devices. I'll no longer intervene with my grace. You don't want me? There you go. And sooner or later they're going to start getting wicked governments, wicked. Why? Because he's leaving them to their own sinful devices. The devil is getting in there unopposed, and God is giving you over to what you want. You hear what I'm saying? So as believers, one of our great prayers, and that's what we were praying for for, for Britain, whether it worked or not, well, we could make our own opinions, we were saying, God, do not leave this nation to its own devices. The wrath of God is revealed against this nation and Europe, and all the things that, that the wrath of God talks about, that it's judging in Romans 1, well, it's in this society today, it's in Europe today, it's a description of Great Britain and Europe. Romans chapter 1. But we're saying, Lord, you've left a priestly nation, believers, on the earth. And we're saying, Lord, please do not give us over to what we deserve. Don't give the church over to what it deserves. Don't give uh, the nation over to what it deserves. But Lord, we ask that you will not look at our sin, but you will look at the blood of Jesus. And, And the death he paid for this city this nation, that you will look at us through blood-tinted glasses, the blood of Jesus, and see us through the sacrifice of Jesus. And in wrath, remember mercy. That is a powerful spiritual warfare. One of your most powerful spiritual weapons is your priestly um, your, your priestly role. We are a kingdom of priests, Do you know that. Kingdom of priests, you're a priest. If you're a believer, you're a priest. We're not talking about someone with a dog collar. They're no more a priest than you. The priesthood of all believers. All of us are priests. Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we are priests with him. And what does a priest do? A priest intercedes on behalf of men and women to God. And brings God's word to men. In other words, a priest is in between. I looked for a man or a woman that would stand in the gap for a nation. That's what it was, Isaiah, wasn't it? I looked for a man or woman who would stand in the gap, couldn't find one. I was looking for someone that would stand in the gap. Couldn't find one, judgment came. So when we do what Daniel did, well, he wasn't a priest like we were, but he's an Old Testament example, and start saying, Lord, and pray. When we pray, we don't know what's happening, but I tell you what, something as powerful as what was happening in Daniel's life takes place. We are releasing resources into spiritual warfare. When you pray, your will be done. Your king, I'm not talking about standing up on big towers, binding demons, calling out the devil and all that rubbish. I'm not talking about, oh, I see in the spirit this and I call upon this specific demon with this name and that. Don't worry about that. Don't get into that. The devil loves that. Gives him attention. I'm talking about getting a word from the Lord. A word from the Lord. God, don't let this nation go. Have mercy on this nation. You pray that in the power of the blood of Jesus and from a heart of faith. You are releasing Power into the heavenly realm. I can't exactly tell you what angel is doing what and how, but I'm telling you what, we have more authority than Daniel in this room today because we are believers, born-again believers, spirit-filled believers. And when we pray in the spirit in our priestly role and take God's word back to him and intercede on behalf and ask for his mercy, then God releases power that he wouldn't have otherwise released. It said, as soon as you spoke, I began my journey to you, Daniel. In other words, as soon as you prayed, the response began. It wasn't a complete response. It took three weeks to get the message through, you've been heard, and then a bit longer to get the uh, the children of Israel out. But it, it, it began something. Prayer works, my friends. It's the greatest weapon that we have got. When we look at the... Uh, Ephesians 6, that key passage of spiritual warfare, and you look at the helmet of truth and the uh, sword of the Spirit, straight after it describes the armour, it then goes into a time of saying pray and keep praying and pray and pray and pray. And so after having the armour, we have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Then Ephesians 6 says, now, now you're all kitted up, you've got the Word of God in your hand, pray, pray, That's your spiritual warfare. Pray God's will. Ask for Holy Spirit insight. And when you do, God will respond. It's amazing how God answers prayer. That's why I love going to the Wednesday evening prayer meeting to get along with other believers and pray together. Because what can tend to happen is if you just pray by yourself here and there, often what happens is you do petition. Nothing wrong with petition. Petition is very powerful. Dear Lord, please help me. Please help grandma. And please you know, get me a new job. And please. All those things are very powerful, okay? But you know, that's, that's, that's good. But I tell you what, when you get together and you start praying over Yemen, like we did last week, and you start praying, what, and, and, and you know that over that nation it's as, it's as hard as hard can be. The devil's got a vice-like grip over that nation of Yemen. Well, what's going to happen unless somebody somewhere cares enough for Yemen to do a Daniel and get a word and plead God's mercy over Yemen and believe that some one day we will crack that realm that's hard above that nation and that heaven will begin to come down? The story of revivals in nations and places Always, you can find the traces of strong intercessory prayer. With one of the last great revivals that took place in Britain, 100 years or so, well, a bit less than that, about 70, 80 years ago, in the Hebrides, in the Hebridean revival. And the leaders of that revival found that there had been a number of ladies that had prayed all their lives for God to come and visit the Hebrides with their glory. And and, and they never saw it in their lives, but they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And one day there was a tipping point. I believe in tipping points. There's a fantastic book, if you like business things and, and, and psychology, there's a fantastic book called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's all about how things suddenly change. A tipping point. I mean, there was a tipping point, wasn't there last week? No, nobody had any idea. How people were going to vote like they did. No one had any, all the pundits and all, they had no idea, but somewhere, somehow, there was a tipping point in, maybe not in your mind, but in, in the general population of Scotland and in the general population of England, there was somehow a tipping point where all the s p people got in and all the sort of Tories got in. There was a tipping point. And you think, when's that, when was that moment? It would, be, it would be hard to tell. But I believe that when we pray, there is also a tipping point. That you build up an inertia. You build up something that moves. You're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. It's like when you push a car or something. You ever help somebody, their car It's not working. You've got to push their car. And at first, the hard thing is to get it moving, isn't it? Ah, it, it's stuck. But once it begins to move, isn't it true, as long as it's not up some big hill... But once it begins to move, it gets easier, doesn't it? It gets easier. I believe that's exactly what happens when we pray, especially over hard and difficult situations. Sometimes we go to places where there's hardly been any prayer at all. Maybe, maybe there's areas in your life or people in your life that need prayer or situations in your life that need you to assault those situations and circumstances with consistent prayer. Not just by yourself. You take it to your, your cell leaders and, you, and your cell members. say, hey, can we pray about something today in my personal life? Can we pray about something in my family situation? Can we pray about something here? Can we pray? Can we pray? And can we pray not just words, but pray in the spirit, with spirit words, spirit-led? When you do that, you're pushing. And the encouragement thing about Daniel is remember... Three weeks, not a goose bump. Had no feeling at all that anything was getting done. This is why Jesus says, ask and keep asking. Pray and keep praying. Why? Because often we can pray and pray and pray and feel like nothing's happened, like God hasn't heard. We see nothing taking place in the physical world. But if we've got a word from the Lord, a prayer line, a scripture, If we've got the Holy Spirit working in us, then you've got to realize you're pushing, you're pushing. Things are happening behind the scenes. You haven't yet seen a manifestation because there's not yet been the tipping point, but a tipping point's going to come. And if anyone has ever seen answered prayer, you know what an amazing thing that is. You get your breakthrough. Has Anyone ever had a breakthrough in prayer? It's the most wonderful thing. There are thousands and thousands more breakthroughs that God wants us to experience. And the only way that we're going to do that is if we spiritual warfare like Daniel. Pray God's word and will into situations and keep praying. I guarantee you breakthrough will come. There'll be tipping points. And when revival hits us, all that will happen is that the, the weight and the amount of prayers that are stacking up One day, if we keep praying, there's going to be tipping point after tipping point after tipping point, manifestation after manifestation, breakthrough after breakthrough, walls are going to come tumbling down, princes are going to fall in the spiritual realm, and deliverance and victory and restoration are going to come. Amen. See you at the prayer meeting. Amen. Well, I won't be there this Wednesday because I'm in Harrogate, the leadership thing, but God bless you. Have a great time. If you're staying tonight... I'm going to speak very importantly tonight on the value of a human soul, the value of a human soul. I hope that you'll never look at another person again in the same light. Thank you.